You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. And by the way, uh, if you have noticed... Uh, Your bulletin has on the back side of it uh, an opportunity for you to take notes. And so you can pull that out and just kind of jot in uh, those key points so that you can take it with you and apply it to your life the rest of the week. Uh, It says that we'll be in in Psalm 117. And so that was a miscommunication on my part. It will actually be Psalm 115 uh, this morning for part three of really a single message To us as the body of Christ, and that is that we should have a posture of praise. I began three weeks ago unpacking three different psalms for that purpose, that we might be called to a posture of praise. We have a tendency to get focused on all of the negative in our lives, don't we? And as a result, we end up turning our our praise to complaining or grumbling, some of us end up feeling defeated, or cast down, or depressed, or worried, or anxious, or fearful, or any number of different things. And so just pastorally, I wanted to remind us uh, as a church that that is not the people of God. That is not the the response of the people of God uh, as we know what God's Word calls us to. Our attitude is not one of complaining or any of those other things, our attitude is one of praise. Um, But my prayer is that these things will settle into our hearts because three short weeks is really not enough time for us to really begin to have a shift in our mindset, nor are three psalms alone. In fact, the entire Bible is aimed at transforming the attitude of the one who has been born Again, for us to say, in everything, I will give thanks. An attitude that says my response to all circumstances as a function of praise in my life is that I will praise the Lord in, in all circumstances and give thanks no matter how difficult they may be. And that gives evidence of the hope that we really do have in Him. So I will turn my heart and my mind to praise the Lord. I I pray that this is that beginning point for you. And we have looked at a psalm of his mercy in Psalm 103. We've looked at a psalm of his faithfulness. And one more as time has grown short. We will look at Psalm 115 this morning for one more theme about God. And I want to invite you, if you found your place, to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 1, that should be the anthem of the Christian church. 
Not to us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give increase more and more. You and your children, may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth He has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may these be more than words on a page. I pray that Your living Word now would be implanted in the hearts of Your people and that it would bring forth fruit. God, that Your Word, as it is proclaimed, would be accompanied by the power of Your Holy Spirit to awaken in us what we are unable to awaken. God, there are people in this room this morning who are cast down and worried and anxious and defeated. Those in this room who do feel complaints and grumbling. So God, I I pray that You by Your Spirit would give us grace to surrender those things to You this morning. And that You would stir us once again. Stir us with Your truth. God, cause us to rise up and say with this text, we will bless the Lord forever. Praise the Lord. And Father, there may be some here even under the sound of my voice. Maybe that will be listening later who don't know Jesus. God, they have not come to the place that they can praise the Lord. Everything around them appears hopeless and empty. They're chasing all of the wrong things. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that You would show Your hand not only of sovereignty, but of mercy today. And that people would surrender their lives to Jesus Christ by faith. Trusting that You are the only way of salvation. And the only way to know and to be made glad in our God. I thank you for what you're going to do in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. There's little known about the historical context of this psalm. Anytime you come to the psalms, 
you should always be asking, what is the context? What is the event or the setting in which this psalm was written? What gave rise to its truth? You might think of Psalm 23 as you're thinking about historical context. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Clearly written by David who was a shepherd and he knew what it was, what it was like to be a shepherd. And so he equated that with God being his shepherd and leading him by still waters and green pastures. There were more than words on a page. It was a picture for David. You might think of Psalm 51 where David later in his life ended up in deep sin when he lusted after a woman and committed adultery. And he found himself deplorable before God. Why would God ever forgive me? And so he confesses that in Psalm 51. It's a confession of his sin saying before the Lord, renew in me a right spirit. God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You've been in sin and as a believer, you know how miserable you are. And so David is just simply using that as a prayer. Every psalm has a historical context. We're not sure then what the historical context of Psalm 115 is. Maybe as you read the psalm, you think of the story of Elijah. This is what I think about. You know, Elijah there on the top of Mount Carmel. He's, he's have, he has all of these other people around them around him calling out to the god Baal to rain down fire on the altar. Baal never answers. And he says to the people, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's forgotten about you. And there's some other language colorful that he uses. But the reality is, maybe, maybe he's forgotten you. And as I read the words here in this psalm, so where is their god? The Gentiles saying to the Christians, I think about it, back to them. The story ends with God lighting a wet altar, a soaked altar on fire and consuming all that is there. So when you read that verse, verse 2, when the Gentiles say, so where is their God? And you say, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. You're reminded of that story that God can, in fact, light an altar ablaze. Or maybe you think about the famous battle in 1 Samuel 17, our children will remember this battle. It was between a little boy by the name of David and a giant by the name of Goliath. David, when he came out to battle, called out to the army, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and your servants of, and your servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Later he made fun of that very same man and came at him with a, like a dog with sticks and stones. And David, the one who would strike this giant and kill him, uttered these words, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he's defiled the armies of the living God. In other words, Goliath had questioned the very God whom they served, saying, Where is your God? And David says, This God, this God will enact justice in the case of your threats in this very day. And I, I think about that as I read God being a shield throughout this text. And then there toward the end when he says that in verse 13, he will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Either way, no matter what the historical context is, the psalm is clear. It is a clear expression that God's providential reign in the lives of His people should produce unwavering praise. God's providential reign 
in the lives of His people should produce unwavering praise. Do you believe this morning that God is in absolute control? Do you believe that He is seated upon His throne? Then that belief as a confession of your heart should in fact produce praise that is unwavering and unrelenting. God's sovereignty or providence in our lives should produce unwavering praise. It is true. There are times in our life, aren't there, when we experience pain and suffering? Isn't that true? There are times in our life where we are tempted to be anxious and fearful. There are times that pose us the question that is posed in the text. Where is your God now? But those who are Christ's always answer what verse 3 answers. Our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. That is always the answer of the Christian. God's providential reign in all the earth. Yes, God is reigning over the heavens and the earth in all places, but particularly... In the lives of His people, the fact that He is in total control in every moment of our lives, every speck of our lives, every single atom that moves, God has total control over. And He is always working for our good. That reason is enough to praise Him. In one word, it is providence. This coming Thursday, we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. Celebration of Thanksgiving takes place every single year when we eat and gather as families, talk about what we're thankful for. But that tradition has a deeply rooted heritage. When some English separatist Christians got on board a ship named the Speedwell, Christians who had lived in Holland for 12 years and were longing for the freedom that could be experienced in the New World. And so in coming to the New World to spread the Gospel and to preserve their people, and to preserve their religious freedom. They loaded this boat, the Speedwell, with food and cargo. William Brewster brought along his printing press and almost 200 books so he could teach the people how to continue to follow the Lord. June 20, or July 22nd, rather, 1620, the pilgrims knelt and prayed for God's blessing and they set sail for England. At, in England, they would join another ship where that Mayflower, as you've been, as you know it to be called, would set sail for the new world. But just after the Mayflower set sail, they ran into storms on the sea and shortages. Those shortages ended up killing so many of their people. Many numbers are tossed around, but we know that there were 102 passengers on board and almost half of those were killed as a result. And yet they came to the new world. They came to the new world seeking that religious freedom where they could worship the Lord. And as they landed there, they came upon a place that was cleared already. What they didn't know is four years before that, there was a settlement there of Indians that had cleared the space. And it was almost like it was meant to be there. They come and they land in that place. Of course, you know the story. Winter would get hard and there would be a famine. But God would ultimately preserve the people. And there they would celebrate that first Thanksgiving meal together when William Bradford declared a day of public Thanksgiving in 1621. If we had time, 
We could tell of another story of this one word, providence. When Roger Williams, a few years later, who ran into the same kinds of religious persecution, not on foreign soil, but here in America, ran for his life. And he settled in a place in Rhode Island. That place has, been come, has come to be known as Providence, Rhode Island. And he named it Providence because of him, his recognition that God was providentially reigning in his life every day. And he believed that he was there by God's divine hand. He believed it so much that he named one of his six children Providence. So that every time he looked in the eyes of that child, he would be reminded that that child was fearfully and wonderfully made and his life was ruled and run by God. Providence. This psalm tells those stories. If we were to truly reflect on the providence of God in our lives, we were to really know all of the things, even down to the smallest degree of what God was doing in our lives every day, I think we would be overwhelmed. We just sang the song 10,000 Reasons to be Thankful. And I'm sure that if we made a list, we could actually probably come up with 10,000 reasons. But the number of ways that God is actually providentially reigning and ruling in our lives every single day is innumerable. God knows you and God loves you and God is reigning in your life and He's sustaining you. Just this week, um, and I could give illustration after illustration, but this is the first one that comes to mind this week as God was doing things in my own life. I went to Pensacola uh, to be a part of a conference. And um, as you know, 285 was, was closed and 85 was closed this week. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get back down to Niceville to get our kids from, from Rocky and... Um, I'm getting on the interstate on Davis Highway in Pensacola. And the, the light is backwards. In Pensac- that, that particular light is backwards. Normally when you sit at a light, right, you get the green arrow and the green light. And then the green arrow goes away and you sit and you wait on the next cycle. In this case, oddly enough, the green arrow comes after the green cycle for people to go. So here's what happens. You've got traffic coming in this direction And all of a sudden, they get a red light and I get the green arrow. So the normal person just puts their foot on the gas and goes and gets on the interstate. But something in me hesitated. And just at the moment that I hesitated, I looked up to see a tractor trailer coming straight at me and screeching through the intersection. You think I could know that was coming? You think I could prepare for that? You think my hesitation was the result of God doing that in my life? At the same time, just two weeks ago, we saw God's hand at work in Holly Edson's son's life when he could have been dead and should have been. And yet God preserved his life, even in the midst of injury. And if we only knew the hundreds upon thousands upon millions of ways that God was doing that in our life every single moment of every single day of our lives, if we only knew that, we would be speechless. Psalm 46 that tells us to be still and know that He is is God would be the very mantra of our lives. We would simply be in awe, much like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and not being able to grasp what you're really taking in. If we were to understand how God is providentially reigning over our lives. 
And so know this this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, no matter what your circumstances tell you, that is God is working for your good. Elijah, the same story that showed God reigning in a big, miraculous way on the mountain. The same Elijah questioned God in the valley when he no longer saw him at work. And yet he only needed to be quiet enough to hear a whisper, the still small voice of God. God is providentially reigning over every detail of our lives. And God's providential reign in your life, if it's true, should then produce unwavering praise. So how does the psalmist tell us, what does he tell us about the ruling, reigning providence of God? I see four things here in the text about God's providence and the way that it works. So when he says the main idea, really, where is your God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. In other words, he's he's seated on the throne. He rules. He reigns. There is no question about that. My question this morning, and I think what the psalmist is trying to tell us about that is what is the nature of it? What does his providence look like in our lives? How do we recognize it and how do we measure it and how do we label it? It's the question. And so four ways that he does that. Number one, God's providence is working to his glory. So if you look around you and you say, I don't see the providence of God at work in my life. I don't I don't see it there. I don't feel it. I don't sense it. Tell me, pastor, where is the providence of God in my life? I would say to you that God's providence is working in your life, no matter whether you see it or not. And it's doing so such that God receives the glory alone. Verse one. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. That is, I believe, the mantra of the whole Bible. The statement of this book is that God is God alone and there is no other. That no one is worthy of our worship but God alone. And He is one. There is only one God. That God expressed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three as this triune God who is worthy of our worship. And there is no one else and nothing else that is ultimately worthy of our worship. So when God is reigning over the universe... He's doing so such that all things in your life and all things in my life and all things in the world and all things in the church ultimately bring honor and glory to him. That's the way he's reigning. The Bible says that he will not. God says from his word, I will not give my glory to another. God hates idolatry. God absolutely hates and pours out His wrath upon idol worship. The first and greatest commandment is that we shall have no other gods before Him. The idea is not in priority above Him, but rather no gods before His face. No God is worthy to stand in the presence of the one holy God. He alone is God. 
You say, I, I don't have any golden calves. I don't, I don't have uh, any statues. I, you know, at best, I've got a cross that hangs around my neck, but I, I don't have, that points to Jesus. I don't, I don't worship and serve idols. Oh, yeah, we do. And they take far more subtle forms today. When we give our affection to something such that if God takes it away, we pitch a fit. It's an idol. Whenever we look at our lives and we give our time and our energies such that it sacrifices time and energy that is designed to be given to God, it becomes an idol. We can make an idol out of sports. We can make an idol out of, really even out of our kids. We can make an idol out of anything. God alone is worthy of our worship. That does not mean that we don't have the freedom to love and enjoy sports or other things. But we can make an idol out of them whenever we don't submit them to the worship of a holy God. Think about it. Even our salvation. So how does salvation become an idol? When our salvation becomes all about us, we've missed the whole point. Ezekiel 36, God told the people of Israel, I'm going to redeem you, praise God. I'm going to give my son's life for you. But at the end of the day, even that action is not for your glory, but for mine. Because you've defamed my glory through all the nations. And so I'm coming to to bring glory and honor back to my name. Even our salvation is all about God. Everything that we are, everything that we have is for His glory. Maybe if it's not been clear thus far, listen to this statement closely. We are not the center of God's universe. God is. Colossians 1 says that all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Acts 17 says that He is the source of all things. In Him all things consist. That we move and breathe and have our being. That He's appointed our boundaries and the places of our dwelling. You live in America and you live in the home that you live in so that you might seek God. This is the whole point. You get to breathe His air that you might know and enjoy Him. Before it does anything else, the providence of God should invoke the praises of His people such that God receives the glory from our praise. Secondly, God's providence is working by His pleasure. God's providence is working by His pleasure. Verse 3 says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. It goes on to describe all of these other idols trying to do what they please and yet... Because they are dumb idols, as other places in the Bible call them. They cannot speak. They cannot hear. They cannot act. Your football games ultimately do nothing for you. At the end of the day, God alone is the one who can act on behalf of His people. And He does so by His pleasure. He does whatever He pleases. I want to qualify that this morning with another passage of Scripture, Ephesians 1, verse 11, that says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. So there is a danger for us to look at our world 
and to say, well, yeah, but what about the problem of evil? What about when someone comes into a small church and assassinates half of their membership? How does God take pleasure in that? How does that please God? You might ask the question, what about world poverty or hunger? What about those things? What about disease? What about orphans? What about human trafficking? What about these broken families? How does God take pleasure in all of that? And I would say to you that that is a complicated issue. But this is not in any way saying that God finds pleasure in those things. The, the word pleasure is describing God's pleasure in doing His will. And I don't know how all the pieces line up, but at the end of the day, here's what I can tell you. That God is working all things according to the counsel of His will. He does what He pleases. And somehow, all of these things fit together to produce a final end are good and pleasing to God. And yet, God does not take pleasure in sin or evil. He can only be willing that it exists. So the truth that the psalmist is telling us is that God does exactly what He intends to do and He does so by His own power and ability and He takes pleasure in that. He enjoys doing it. He enjoys doing what He intends to do. And the rest of the verse is proof of that. And so He is different than all these other idols. His very essence is different than all of them. The last verse of that particular section says that the ones who worship these idols... So everyone who trusts in them, verse 8, is like them. That is what makes God so distinctly different. He is the source and creator of all things, and He can never be like us. You can shape idols in your life, fashion things to make yourself happy and to satisfy the very depth of your soul. But at the end of the day, all of those are created things, and all of them flow back from God Almighty. So God is who we were created for. You see that picture? And so God does His will according to His pleasure. Or He works His providence according to His pleasure, rather. So it's working to His glory and by His pleasure. But here's the beauty of this. You say, well, that sounds pretty egotistical to me. How does God have the right to do that? The first answer I would give is God has the right to do anything He's got. No one else is like Him. And so God is worthy of that glory. Whether we render it to Him, give it to Him, surrender it to Him, or not. But, God's providence, number three, is also working for our good. It's working for our good. Look at verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is the help and their shield. He says that three times. He talks about Him blessing us, both great and small. He talks about Him increasing us. God, when He works providentially in the universe, His providence is working such that it produces good things for His people. Isn't that good news this morning? That God's working for my good. He's working for those who fear Him, those who love Him, those who are saved, in other words, He's working for their good. Describes three different people. Israelites, the priests, so those who are 
following the Lord, those who seem to the people to be closer to the Lord, though we only come to, to intimacy with God through Christ. He is our high priest. And then just a general statement. All who fear God, hear this. So all you this morning who fear God, hear this. God is your help. When you feel down and anxious and fearful and unthankful and ungrateful and negative and complaining like. God is your helper. And He is your shield. It's interesting, the verse of the day. How many of you have version on your phone, little Bible app? The verse of the day you might have noticed this morning was, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. Psalm 3.3. He is our helper. These words are not just help and, and shield in just general terms. These are salvific, salvation kinds of terms. God is our help in the sense that He is our rescue from calamity that's caused ultimately by sin and evil, both in our lives and in the world around us. He is our rescue. He rescues us from our sin. Amen? He is our help and He is our protection. In other words, He protects us from the evil around us. He keeps us in the faith. Praise God. He protects us. Later in verses 12-15, through 15, you see the picture of unconditional blessing. No matter whether you're great or small, it's not based on your merit. This blessing was given to Abram, carried on through Aaron and so on. This blessing of descendants, this blessing or this promise of descendants and blessing to all generations and to all places on the earth. This is an unconditional promise that God will in fact keep His Word to those who fear Him. Alistair Begg says often, that this demands a response. Notice here at the end of the text, he says, the dead do not praise the Lord. And here's Alistair Begg's statement. Dead people don't sing. So God is not just ultimately working for His glory according to His pleasure and for, His, for our good. He is also working toward our response. You cannot just know those things and not do something about it. He tells two responses primarily. The first is stewardship. Verse 16, he says, Heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth He has given to the children of men. The earth is still His, but He's given it to us. And the, the idea is as a trust, as a stewardship that we would manage the things that we have. So how do we rightly do that? How do we rightly have this earth? The earth He has given to the children of men. How do we rightly deal with that? The very next phrase is the dead don't praise God. It's the, the idea that our, the way we manage what we've been given would give praise to God. In other words, it would be consistent with His glory and His will primarily. That we would spend what we have financially. That we would give what we have in our time. That we would give the talents that God has given us. That we would give those things for His glory and His will. That our lives would be poured out for that purpose. But the second thing he says is praise. And this, you, that you should revel in this. Just absolutely roll around in this for a minute. You know, we talked about that, that people who praise sing, right? They sing. Go through the Walmart parking lot singing. Some of y'all might have heard some folks singing this week. I hope you did. But anyway, uh, you go, you sing. There's even a song that we sing. 
I sing because I'm happy. So if there's joy, if God has made us glad, then we sing. But it is so much of a privilege that the writer of the psalm says, dead people don't praise. You have been made alive in Christ. People who are dead don't have that privilege. Are there people that sing in the world? Absolutely. But none of them that sing in a way that is consistent with the glory of the living God. We get a chance to sing about the God of heaven. The only uncreated being. Everything else that the world sings about will one day be gone. But we will sing the praises of our God for all of eternity. We get a great privilege this morning. So you say, well, I don't see the hand of God at work in my life. I I just don't see those things, Pastor. I, I don't find reason to praise because I don't see God working out His glory for me. My good and God's good pleasure. I don't see that happening in my life. There's one more thing about these psalms that we've looked at over the last three weeks that you should note. And it comes back to their truth being set in a historical context. They show not what God is necessarily doing in the present, but rather they remind us of what God has done in the past. And then they call us to action. Alistair Begg again said, the providence of God is most clearly seen not through the windshield of life, but through the rearview mirror. When you're in the midst of the journey, sometimes you don't recognize the providence of God. But this is when we are reminded to look back again and again at what God has done for us. The temptation is to believe the complaint of the Gentiles in verse 2. Look where you are. Look at all the things that are happening to you. Where is your God now? But the truth of verse 3 should ring out from the mountaintops. Our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. Chief among those, things that God has done in the past that show what God is doing in our present is another place in Scripture. And I'll close with this. And I believe that this is the highest expression of God's providence. The most gracious, the most merciful, the most loving, the most just. In this particular passage of Scripture, we find all that God was intending to do in the world from the beginning and through until the end and through in eternity. And it does so, so that it pleases Him. So what is it that pleases our God? Isaiah 53. We're going to begin talking about here just a few short days preparing for Christmas. Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. This is Christ. 
It goes on to describe that He is the one who is wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities, our sin. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him and by His stripes we're healed. Only through God's work through Jesus Christ on the cross are we healed from our sin. He was oppressed and afflicted. And yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. And He goes on to describe the death of Christ, but it ends in this verse. Don't miss it. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Pleased Him. He, was, he has put Him to grief. When you make His soul an offering for sin, He shall see His seed. He shall prolong His days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. The most pleasing act that ever happened to satisfy a holy, providential God was the death, the slaying of His perfect Son for sinners. And here's what that means. That means that now all those who fear the Lord fall underneath His providential care. And the kind of fear that He's describing is not terror, but humble, reverential awe, faith and commitment to God as, as the one source of all things through His Son Jesus Christ by faith. That's what it means to experience God's providence. So have you come to the place this morning that you've put your faith and trust in that God? Through Jesus. Where the cross has become your hope. I want to invite you to bow your heads all across the room this morning. And call you to that very decision. Where you would surrender all that you are to Jesus. fact is, He is ruling and reigning. But the only way that that works for your good is if you are His. You are a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That means that there was some point in your life where you made a decision. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus and follow Him. You asked the Lord to forgive you of your sin and to heal you from your unrighteousness. And you submitted by faith to Jesus. So has it happened for you? Has that moment taken place for you? Maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. You'd say, Pastor, I don't know that's ever happened to me. Today it can. Maybe this is your first time in church. It can happen for you. Maybe you never thought that it was you. You thought it was somebody else. But see, it's personal for each and every one of us. Will you come to faith in Jesus Christ today? Believers in this room, you've been fearing instead of trusting. You've been complaining instead of praising. And this is a turning point for you. You need to turn that complaining to praise because God is worthy working for you in ways that you can't even imagine. And so will you trust Him? Even when your circumstances tell you otherwise, will you trust Him? With every head bowed and every eye closed, all across the room, we're standing. And as I pray... Now is the time to follow Jesus, to step out of where you're standing and to follow Him. Lord, I pray 
God, that you'd have your way in hearts in this place, that there would be obedience right now, not tomorrow, not next week, but right now for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Thank you.